Welcome back to Run the List, a medical education podcast for medical students and all learners. Our hosts are Dr. Naveen Kumar, Dr. Walker Red, Dr. Emily Gutowski, and Joyce Sow. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome back to Run the List. Today's episode is a bit of a deviation from our traditional content. The core mission of Run the List is to set early learners up for success. Today, we're taking that outside the world of medicine and into the world of finance. We're talking to Dr. William Bernstein about managing finances as a medical student and as a resident. Just as a disclaimer, none of this is meant to serve as financial advice. Dr. Bernstein is a retired neurologist who writes about finance, economics, and history. He's written several books on portfolio management, including The Four Pillars of Investing. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Bernstein. My pleasure. off, why is it so important to think about managing our finances so early on, even before some of us have started making money? Well, the reason is is pretty simple, uh, which is that your financial health is extremely important to you. And it's important to start thinking about finances before you actually start investing and doing them for a number of reasons. The major reason is that just as when you start your medical career, you begin by learning anatomy and physiology uh, and pathology and pharmacology, uh, so too when you, you, you start thinking about your finances and investing, you have to learn those things first. So that's something you should tackle early on in your career. Doctors have a well-deserved reputation as being poor investors. And the reason for that is pretty simple, which is that they don't treat investing the way they treat any other serious field of study. They certainly wouldn't you know, try to diagnose and treat patients without learning the, the basics of the preclinical years and the clinical years and in training. And it's the same thing with finance. If you don't know the financial equivalents of the basic sciences, uh, you're going to wind up in a world of hurt. Got it. Yeah, I always thought it would be nice if there were a mandatory class on this in college or med school, but I guess this is part of growing up. So in general, people starting out in medicine tend to be on the younger side. What issues in particular do young people face when they're approaching their finances? Well, there are five hurdles, and I write about these in my little leaflet. Uh, it's a, called If You Can, so it's free. Uh, you can download it, just put it into your search engine, William Bernstein, and If You Can, you know, I, I basically lay these out and lay out a roadmap for dealing with these five hurdles. The first hurdle is realizing just how corrosive our material culture is. And it, we glorify consumer spending, uh, and it's very, very hard to become uh, an aggressive saver in our current culture. If you can't save money, uh, your name can be Warren Buffett and you're still going to be in bad shape, okay? If you can't save money, being the world's best investor doesn't do you any good at all. So that's the very first hurdle. I'll make a plug right here for a a physician by the name of Jim Dolly, D-A-H-L-E, who wrote The White Coat Investor. It's a book. It's also a website. That's The White Coat Investor. And his mantra is to live like a resident for your first several years of practice to get good saving uh, habits in line. Because if you can't save, if you're spending all of your money on fancy cars and clothes and vacations and houses early in your career, uh, you're likely going to fail financially later on. 
Now, the second hurdle gets to the basic science of investing that I was talking about, which is the theory of investing. You really have to learn that in order to be able to invest competently. And you have to learn about something called the efficient market hypothesis, which teaches you that really almost nobody picks stocks and times the market well. The next hurdle you have to uh, surmount, sort of the next basic science, is learning market history and to get a sense of just how risky stock and bond markets can be and what past returns have have looked like. Not that you're going to expect to get those returns, but just to learn how bad things can get in the market. Several times in the past couple of generations, stocks have lost 50% in value, much worse than what happened, for example, in March. Between 1929 and 1932, stocks temporarily lost almost 90% of their value. And that's the kind of thing that you have to know about if you're going to invest competently. The, the fourth hurdle, which is another basic science of investing, Investing is learning the psychology of investing. The lodestone of investment psychology is overconfidence. Physicians as a group tend to be somewhat overconfident. Male physicians in particular and surgical specialists in particular. Testosterone does wonderful things for muscle mass, but it does nothing for judgment. And that is something that you have to be able to grapple with is your own overconfidence. We're overconfident in our, in our ability to invest. We're also overconfident overconfident in our ability to take risk. We think we can take risk, but when the excrement hits the ventilating system, uh, you're liable to behave very differently than you, the way you think that you're going to behave. Sort of the, the classic overconfidence mistake I see physicians making is thinking that they have some special expertise in investing in pharmacy and device stocks. You have no particular, as a physician, have no particular expertise in that field. You may think that you're using a wonderful device or a wonderful wonderful drug and that you know something that someone else does. Believe me, you don't because the people on the other side of your trades are people who spend all day long reading the balance sheets of these companies and they know things that you can't possibly know. The fifth and final hurdle is to learn about the business of investing. And it's simply to, to know that it's not too much of an overstatement to say that the financial services industry is the largest repository of criminal activity in the country. And you have to know again, what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. These people don't sport horns and breathe fire out of their noses. The person you have to be aware of is your your cousin or your fraternity brother or sister or a church member who's also a financial advisor or a broker or an insurance salesman. They do not have your best interests at heart, although they might seem to. And again, you know, these, these five hurdles seem awfully formidable. And that's why I recommend you download my booklet because the booklet gives you a roadmap to learn about all of these things. It gives you a reading list, a study guide that enables you to learn about the five hurdles, the basic sciences, if you will, that you have to acquire to invest competently. Wow. Thank you so much for that great explanation. We'll definitely include a link to the White Coat Investor as well as your leaflet on our website and our one pager. So just to summarize the five hurdles or pieces of advice that you mentioned, number one, live like a resident, get used to saving money early in your career, and it will be easier down the road. Number two, learn the theory of investing. Number three, learn market history so you can appreciate just how risky stocks can be. Number four, learn investment psychology so as to avoid overconfidence and to get a sense of your own risk tolerance. And then lastly, learn about the business of investing, whose advice to seek versus whose to avoid. So moving on, a lot of us are probably familiar with the concept of saving money for retirement, but we might be uncomfortable with the idea of investing it. 
Why should we be thinking about investing our money so early on as well? Because when you invest, start investing early, you basically actuate the magic of compounding. You know, if you save a lot of money during your first 10 years of training and practice, and then you stop saving uh, after that first 10 years, you're probably in as good a shape as if you didn't save for the first 10 years and then save for the rest of your career over the next you know 20 or 30 years. The money that you start saving early on works much harder for you and does a much better job for you than the money that you save late. If you haven't started saving for retirement until you're age 45 or 50, chances are the game is lost. If you can do it when you know you're just out of training and certainly even if you when you start uh, your training, then you've got a much higher chance of success. I see. Let's say we want to start investing, assuming that we either have some money saved up from work before or we start working in residency. Where should we begin? Well, obviously, the very first thing you do is you start by repaying your loans. Even before you start by repaying your loans, you should hopefully not have any credit card debt because the interest rate on credit card debt is very high and you can't possibly make any kind of investment return that will overcome that. So get rid of that as fast as you can. Get rid of your, you know, your educational loans as fast as you can and then start uh, saving. If you have a 401k program or something similar, Similar to that, you should at the very minimum contribute up to the match because the match is free money. And you should start by saving as much money as you can and living as modestly as you can while you get your financial feet under you. I've heard a lot about opening up a Roth IRA early on in our careers. Can you talk a bit about what that is and how it differs from a traditional IRA? Well, theoretically, a Roth IRA is not much different than a regular IRA. A regular IRA, a traditional, so-called traditional IRA, you you don't pay any taxes on the money that you put in. So it's a tax deduction, which is very attractive uh, superficially, but you have to pay taxes on the back end when you take the money out. A Roth reverses that process, okay? The Roth takes money that you've already paid taxes on, and then you put it into the retirement account, and then every penny that comes out of it is tax-free. Now, if you think about that, the best way to do a Roth is to contribute to it when your tax rate is low, that is when you're a resident, okay, and then take the money out when you're retired, when your tax bracket is almost certainly going to be much higher. So if you're reasonably sure that your tax bracket is going to be higher when when you're in retirement than when you're a resident, then that's a good thing to do. Now, there's another reason to invest in a Roth, which is that you're actually saving much more. You know, the limits for contribution limits for Roths and for traditionals are the same, but $1,000 saved into a Roth is worth much more than $1,000 saved into a traditional IRA because you've got to pay taxes on the back end out of the traditional IRA, whereas the money that uh, comes out of the Roth is tax-free. So in effect, you're actually able to save more because you're saving in after-tax dollars. I see. That makes sense. So now that we know the importance of getting started early, let's move on to some of the nuts and bolts. Let's say we've started our residency and we find out that we've got a 401k plan. How do we start investing in that? Okay, well, the way it looks like is you can do it one of two ways. If you're very lucky, you have a target date fund available to you, which has very low cost and is passively invested. That is, it invests only in stock indexes. And Vanguard has uh, probably the best ones. Schwab and Fidelity have fairly good ones, too. And all you simply do is you uh, put the money into that. You get it deducted monthly from your from your paycheck. And then the investment company takes it from there. And that is 
an excellent way to do it. Now, what some people like to do is they like to figure out their own stock allocation or their own investment allocation. So what they might do, for example, and what I recommend doing is just take one third of your money and put each each of those thirds into a domestic stock fund, a domestic bond fund, and a, uh, a foreign stock fund. And so every month, automatically, one third of your contributions will go into each of those funds. And then you have the job, if you do it that way, of rebalancing your allocations back to the one third, one third, one third target. So for example, during a month when the stock market has done particularly well, you're going to wind up to get to one third, one third, one third, putting most of the money into the bond fund. Okay. On the other hand, if you had very poor stock returns, then you're going to wind up putting a lot more money into the stock funds to get it back up to one third, one third, one third, because the stocks will have lost value. So that's a very short, basic answer of what it looks like at, uh, at ground level. Got it. So one of our options is a target date fund, which passively invests our money. It adjusts its asset allocation model as it gets closer to our retirement. Or another option we can choose is a proactive approach where we distribute the money ourselves. If we want to use that option, the split that you recommend is one-third into foreign stocks, one-third into domestic stocks, and one-third into bonds. If we do it that way, we have to stay on top of rebalancing our allocations into thirds based on how the market's doing. Would you be able to give us an example of how this setup might have played out during the beginning of the pandemic? What what happened in March uh, was that the markets got hit, the stock markets got hit very, very hard. And all that meant to, you know, somebody who was investing in a 401k plan was they had to put more money in the stocks, that they had a target date fund, then the investment company took care of that for them. If they were doing the investing themselves, then they wound up you know, putting more money into stocks and maybe even taking some of the money that was in the bond fund and putting it into the stock funds to bring the target allocation back to, you know, whatever their policy was. One third, one third, one third is what I suggest. So the only reaction you're doing is current events do affect securities prices and that affects the rebalancing process. That is keeping your allocations to each part of the or each section of the uh, the investment policy back to wherever you want it to be. So the example I used was one third, one third, one third of foreign stocks, domestic stocks, and bonds. And, you know, current events are going to affect what those actually are. And then you have to react to that to get back to the target allocation that you have. This has been such an informative episode. There's always more to talk about, but this was meant to be an introduction, so we'll have to leave it here for now. As we wrap up, can you leave us with a couple major takeaways from our conversation? I think that the, the most important thing for physicians to learn is, once again, is to is to live as modestly as you can uh, while you're in training and particularly your first several years in practice, and to take the time to acquire the knowledge of finance and to treat finance as the serious academic subject that it is, it just as seriously as you treat medicine. If you treat finance as an academic discipline as Um, worthy as study as medicine is, then you're going to do fine. Well, Dr. Bernstein, please pardon the pun, but you've given us a wealth of information that we can use to start off on the right financial foot. It was a real pleasure having you on this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure too. If you like this episode and want to continue learning with us, please subscribe and consider leaving us a rating and review to let us know how we're doing. Also, be sure to check out our weekly handouts and tutorial summaries on our website and our Twitter for helpful graphics and space repetition of episode content. See you next time.